Sunday of Advent. Today we're talking about love. And so you, those of you that have been here, I've been asking you each week to kind of dream a little bit about this. So let me start with a question. How's Advent going? Are you finding yourself distracted or are you able to focus on the Lord and look forward to just the celebrations that we have as a church? What is it? It's a it's easy to get distracted, isn't it? So easy. If you got kids, jobs, careers, wives, I mean, you know, you get distracted. Somebody laughed. That was a joke. I had one person laugh. So, yeah, what's happening? Are you staying focused? I am convinced this is a time when Satan loves to move in and create distractions. He's a master at that. So don't give up. Keep staying focused. We've talked each week about the candles. Um, Just so that you understand why we have candles. You know, the lighting of the candle has been part of Advent for a long time. It goes all the way back to Isaiah 9, uh, verse 2. Let's just read that. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And this concept of the light coming is all through the New Testament. Uh, And it's Jesus. John tells us that the light was coming into the world, and that's Jesus. So at one level, this reminds us of what we're about to celebrate Christmas Eve, the coming of the Messiah. Okay? But there's another piece to it, um, more than the Messiah coming, is that Isaiah envisioned all along, and we'll talk about this in a minute, a people of God who would enjoy God's love and then turn around and display that love and express it in the world around us. So this light, these candles are growing. The light's growing each week. It's getting brighter and brighter. And it's a reminder of what the church is all about. We are to be the light on the hill. Jesus said, we are the light of the world. And so the candles remind us of how important it is this week to love our neighbors. So in the ancient world, it really was a very dark world. They, um, they looked forward to the, what, the advent, the coming of the Messiah, the Davidic king, the king who would come and restore them to the greatness of David's kingdom. So it was going to be from David's line, the tribe of Judah this king, this Messiah who would come. So he finally came, and uh, they expected that when he would come, he would break the Roman rule and reestablish a kingdom as great as David's kingdom was. That did not happen. It was a surprise that it didn't happen. They tried to make him king several times, and he refused. You see, the physical part of the kingdom has not yet been established. What Jesus did at the first advent was two very significant things. Number one is he forgave us our sin. Now, why is that important? We're going to read why in just a little bit, why that's important. You see, um, one of the things that we struggle with as the, in the West is that many of our values as a culture are actually based on Christian values. If you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, you will see the values coming through everywhere you look. Okay? But that's not, that's not natural to the world, and it doesn't exist in the rest of the world. Some of you may remember uh, back in uh, April, somewhere in that time frame when we had our Mission Sunday, 
Uh, Lucas, my friend from Kenya, was here. We got up on the stage. Lucas, uh, I, I do a lot of mission work with Eagle Projects International, and he's our African director. So he lives in Kenya. Kenyan is a, Kenya is a desert country. And so the people, uh, every, well, that's not true. The women every morning get up and have to walk a mile to get water because there's no water in the village. So they have these jugs that they put on their heads and they walk a mile to get water and then they carry the water back. So Lucas was thinking how great it would be if we could put a well in. So as a mission, we've been working on funding that and the original um, well was going to cost $8,000. Uh, after all of the bribery, the extortion, yes, the police show up if he doesn't pay whatever they tell him he has to pay, and they arrest him, it's currently sitting at 30000 okay? It's an evil world. It's a fallen world. Love is not a big part of the world. So what Christ did at the first advent was he brought atonement, sacrifice for our sins, and brought forgiveness. We needed forgiveness. From whom? God. That's who. But then, the second thing he did was he sent the Holy Spirit so that never again would we be alone. That happened at Pentecost, the new covenant. So we have already, we're on this side if you were back on this side, you would be dreaming about the coming Messiah when everything would get put to rights. So he came, and then he died on the cross. So now we live after the cross, and our advent is looking forward. But what, what are we looking forward to? We're looking for another return of Christ where the world demonstrates genuine love to one another. We can't wait. Won't that be wonderful? Genuine love all the time. That's what our Advent is. We're looking forward to the coming Messiah. So <clears throat> Isaiah's dream was a people, uh, a faithful people who would be filled with the Spirit, who would love the Lord freely, who would serve him, and who would reflect all of that display that and live it out in a fallen world. He didn't have that. He didn't have it. It was a world filled with darkness, so much superstition. They didn't have science. They didn't understand anything. We understand a whole lot more. And so the coming of the Lord was their only hope. Their only hope. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 54. Uh, this is part of the dream is that there would be a people who would be loved by this God and who would turn around and love the people around them. Now, Isaiah 54 is the last in the second section, depending on how you divide up Isaiah, but in the way I divide it up, it's in the second section. So the first section, you may remember, we've talked about Isaiah several times now, was written to the southern kingdom as a northern kingdom was being destroyed. That They didn't listen, and so they got deported because they also rebelled against the Lord. So the second section of Isaiah is written to them while they're in Babylon to give them hope God hasn't forgotten. And then the third section is when they come back into the land and they're rebuilding the city, of the town. It's not really a very big city at this point of Jerusalem. So this is the last chapter in the second section. And this is what he's saying to them. They're just about to come back into the land. This is Isaiah 54. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. 
you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. That's what happened at the cross, redemption. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. Okay, pause just for a minute. That's what he did. For a brief moment, why? Why did he turn his back on them? Because of their rebellion and sin and wickedness. All the way through the Old Testament, God's wrath is revealed against those who are wicked. His tender mercy is revealed to the remnant in the middle of that stream of evil, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. You see it clearly in the book of Lamentations, all the prophets. You see, all throughout their evil and wickedness, there was always a small group, a remnant of those who were faithful. What Isaiah pictured was a whole world of those people. Okay? The light, the candle. Do you know the church is growing all around the world fast? You can go to Africa, you can go to Asia, go to India, go to any of these places, Korea, and the church is exploding. And that's what Jesus envisioned when he talked about the kingdom. Starts out as a little tiny mustard seed, smallest garden seed known, and it grows into this massive plant. And that's what hap- happens. That's what's happening. And that was Isaiah's dream, and honestly, that was God's dream. As a people, a people who would love him freely, a people who would show the world what hope genuinely looks like, who would show the world what peace actually is because we rest, because we have the Spirit of God. This week, who would show the world what genuine love looks like. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. What is this love? So he says for, in verse 7, For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for just a moment. But with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you. This is a promise for you, the redeemed. God is not angry. I have sworn never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, said the Lord, who has compassion on you. Okay, one of the things that we see in the Old Testament, it's like a children's picture book. It's one of the ways you can visualize it. It's very tangible, very visceral. You can touch the walls of the temple. You can hear the, the animals, the bleeding of the sheep as they're being led to the sacrifice. You can smell the blood when they sacrifice them and field dress them. You can, you can see all of that. Why did God do something so visceral, so real, so tangible? 
<clears throat> well, when you get over to, uh, excuse me for a second. Excuse me. When you get over to the New Testament, he's now talking about a world that is beyond our three dimensions and our five senses. Paul says, for example, right now we're seated at the right hand of God. How's that possible? I live in this world. It's hard for us to understand that this world is a forgery. This is not the real world. This is fake. If you've ever seen the original movie, The Matrix, that's where they got the idea, right out of the Bible. That's what the brothers said. And so this is their world. This is the world we live in. It's a fallen world, but it's not our reality. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. So how do we understand this true spiritual reality when it's not, we can't see it, we can't touch it? Well, we have the Old Testament. And here's an example of that. Paul says that we are a spiritual temple. Okay, we don't use temples. That's not a big part of our world. And so how how do we use that to capture what we're to be like? Do we go to a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple? I hope not. If you've never been to one, come with me and see how vile they are. They're just horrendous, okay? Um, So where do we go? We go back into the Old Testament, and we look at the Jewish temple. And we look at how this temple was designed to function. This was God's home. It was designed to draw all the nations. So when the world looks at the church, do they see that we are in love with this God? that they can find God right here. In the Jewish temple, this is where the poor could come to have their needs met. Uh, Leviticus says the whole purpose of the law was that there would be no poor among you. They had a temple treasury that they could take care of the poor. So when the world looks at the church today, that should be our spiritual reality. Do they see us caring for the poor, sacrificing, bending over backwards? In the Jewish temple, this is where all the Jewish festivals occurred. All around the year, they had to get together as a nation to remember God's goodness and his love and all that he had done. The rabbis tell us that they would sing for 24 hours a day for eight days, dancing around the the candles and singing the praise psalms, just having such a wonderful time. And God says, I'll take care of all your animals and your crops. Don't worry, just rest and come and celebrate. When the world looks at the church, do they see us dancing and celebrating or do they see us doing this? I don't know where in the world the church became this. In all of my thousands of coffees and beers with people, of people that have walked away from the church, guess what the common reason is? Right here. Jesus himself said in Luke 6, do not judge, do not condemn. I didn't come to condemn the world, he said. Right? This is where love enters into the picture. And yet, that's what the church has become in the West, this. Well, who wants to be part of a God that's going to be like that? Because the God we serve is a God who wants to bless and just pour out grace and love people and draw them to himself. Now, the essence of human dignity is that you get to choose. He's not going to choose for you. The dream was that you would choose freely. Adam and Eve, you get to pick, and they rebelled. Pick any one of you, you get to choose, and you all rebelled. We'll see that in just a second. Every one of you has rebelled against the Lord and are continuing to rebel against the Lord. If it wasn't for that deep mercy and compassion and love, we wouldn't stand a chance, okay? And so this, the Jewish temple is where all the celebrations occurred. When they look at us, they should see us dancing and laughing and enjoying life. 
So you see the picture? For us to define true spiritual reality, we have to go back to the Jewish temple and take a look at why God put it there in the first place. And then that gives us a clearer picture of what true spiritual reality looks like and what this church should look like. Okay? So we're looking forward to a time when these things are, they define culture. They're not the exception to culture. And right now, they're the exception to culture. That's our advent. Jesus is coming back, and we can't wait. This concept of love, what I'm talking about, this permeates the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation because we have a loving, compassionate God. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You have to be very discerning when you read the Old Testament. You read Lamentations, and it's filled with judgment by God. And the city of Jerusalem is just days, if not uh, hours away from falling to Babylon. And uh, right in the middle of that, it's a horrible book. It's a horrible book of judgment. And God's wrath is just being poured out on Jerusalem for their failure to honor him. And right in the middle, you've got these little tiny verses addressed to us, the faithful. Great. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Okay? That was addressed to the remnant. So you have to be very discriminating on how, when you read the judgment passages, because God's judgment is, his wrath is revealed against the wicked, not against the faithful. What he envisioned was to take this small remnant, bring about forgiveness, which happened in the first advent, and then send the spirit, and it would begin to grow. And that's what the candles symbolize. The church is growing around the world. Don't be fooled. Okay? If you read the media, you're going to come to the opposite theological conclusion. Don't be fooled. The heart of the law, Leviticus, was that they would love one another. Leviticus 19. When Jesus, now we can understand why Jesus said um, the two greatest commandments are love God. That's out of Deuteronomy and love one another. That's Leviticus 19. That's the only verse out of Leviticus that's quoted. The whole law can be summed up in that one command is that we love God and love each other. And then we are to show that love, that sacrificial love to a world who desperately needs it. How did the first century 12 disciples turn the world upside down? It wasn't through rebellion, protest. It wasn't through getting elected. It wasn't through any of that. It was through teaching people about Jesus. That's how. This concept of love is, comes from the Hebrew word chesed. I've used it before because it's really fun to say. It's a special word that ties his love to his covenant. What was his covenant? What was the promise that he made? Exodus 19, right? He said, although the whole earth is mine, you will be, I will be your God and you will be to me my prized possession. And that's what Peter quotes in 1 Peter 2. That's the promise that God bound himself to. to. His love is based on his covenant. He can never violate that covenant because that was a promise. And God never breaks his promise. And so this concept of love is based on his promise, which is what our love should be based on. Paul says in the Corinthian epistle, 2 Corinthians, that I, because of Christ's death for us and his love for us, I am compelled to love others and to share Christ. It should bring that level of compulsion. The more you know about what God really did for you and how deep and wide and broad his love really is, the more you become compelled to do the same. 
Because our world that we live in is a nasty world. It's a nasty world. It's fallen. And it needs love. This world needs love. So this concept of love forms the basis for the New Testament concept of agape, which you've all heard, translated love. Okay? It's not friendship. It's not that kind of stuff. It's a love that is, that is based on a willingness of one person to sacrifice for another person. That's what this kind of love is. Are you willing to do that? Sacrifice for your neighbors, your friends, your relatives? A stranger you meet on a grocery store, somebody who flips you off on the highway, are you willing to sacrifice love for that person? Sacrifice yourself? It's a gift from the Lord. Look in Romans 5.5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is why the world cannot really genuinely love because it has to come from the Holy Spirit. You all know the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. What's the first thing listed on the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, right? Love's the first one. That's a gift that comes to us from being faithful. That's where we get it. It comes from the Lord. At its core, this concept of love, which is authentic love, which is what we are created for, means sacrificing. Putting someone else as more important than yourself. Not natural for the fallen world. Rob's reading a book in his uh, reading group. If you're not part of it, you should get. You should join it. I got the book and reading it. It's called the book that God, uh, the book that made your world. Subtitle is how the Bible created the soul of Western civilization by Vishal Mengawadi. When I was in India, he's Indian, Indian philosopher, Christian. Uh, all the students were like, "Oh, we love this guy. We love this guy." When he was in college, his his professors talked about how evil Christianity was and how wonderful Hindu was. Of course, being a college student, that just made him want to go read the Bible to find out how evil it was, and he came to Christ. And this book is how documenting what happened with India before Britain came and after Britain came, how the Bible changed everything in India. But he's also tracing world history. So he has a little section in here, one of the chapters is on literature, especially in the Middle Ages, the medieval period, how the Bible was the only thing that people had. And so they everything that they wrote was based on biblical principles. And he uses Dante. Uh, you may remember Dante's Divine Comedy back in the 14th century, 12th and, 14th, 12th and 13th centuries. He talks about it in here, and he says, Dante explored contemporary religious battles of his time, navigating the spheres of hell, purgatory, and heaven. His cosmic journey ends with the vision of the Trinity, And here's what he said. Here's what he writes. In the profundity of clear substance, of deep light, appeared to me three circles. This is the Trinity. Of three colors and equal circumference. What do we say in our doctrinal statements? We believe in the Trinity, equal in power and glory, equal circumference. They're all the same. And the first seemed to be reflected by the second What does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the first, the Father, is reflected in the second. That's the second person, Jesus. As a rainbow by a rainbow, and the third seemed like a flame breathed equally from both. How's the Holy Spirit represented in the New Testament? Fire, a flame. O eternal light, existing in yourself alone, alone knowing yourself, and who, known to yourself and knowing, 
love and smile upon yourself. This is the God that we serve, a very loving God. Dante's profound journey serves as a divine metaphor for the values necessary to develop the city of God on earth. Just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, quote, of three colors and equal circumference, humans, too, find their meaning in the Trinity, and they ought to function as individuals while retaining collective goals. The only force that can impact this unity, that can bring it about, that can make it happen, the only force Dante believed is divine love. Without that love, people act like the damned in Dante's hell. They abuse, insult, and cannibalize one another with no check on their destructive behavior. So now I'm going to read to you one more passage out of Romans. Where did he get this idea? Right out of Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul's tracing what happened from the creation to the present fallen world. And he talks about how this came about. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they, evil people, did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, earlier he had said, everyone suppresses the truth that creation reveals about God. We just don't believe it. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. He said, you want it? There you go, you got it. Adam and Eve, you get to choose. Every one of you, you get to choose what you're going to do. And everyone chose rebellion. So that they, ought, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not that bad. They're full of envy. You ever been jealous? You ever coveted? Murder. You ever been angry? Jesus said it's the same as murder. Strife. You ever uh, participated and created an argument? Deceit. You ever told a white lie? Malice. You ever been hostile to somebody? They're gossips, slanderers. Have you ever spoken poorly about somebody else? God-haters, insolent, arrogant. You ever been boastful, arrogant, and boastful? You ever, you ever been that way? They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. You ever disobey your parents? Your kids do. Did you? They have no understanding, no fidelity. Here it is, no love. That's the world we live in. This is a description of us. You have to go deeper into Romans to find out that the work of Christ on the cross, his love for us, is what changed it. So now we only do it a little bit. But doesn't that define us? Doesn't that define the world? When you move away from our country and get into these developing nations, horrible. Don't be fooled. Come with me and see what I see. So, the only question I have, are you waiting well for Advent? That's why we're here. Are you waiting well? Are you anticipating? Are you looking forward to the time when love defines our culture is not the exception to culture? It starts with us. 
This world needs us. They need us to be a loving church. They need us to care for the poor. They need us to reach out to people in grocery stores if they look like they're hurting and crying. I was in the airport recently and the lady was just crying and I don't know what was wrong. I got her, uh, I saw her phone number on her tag. So I just sent her a text, said, you don't know me. I just saw you crying in the airport. I just want you to know I've been praying for you. You ever stop somebody in the store and just say, you doing okay? You ever gone to your neighbor and say, how can I help? Are you waiting well? Because this very fallen, sinful, tired world needs us to be loving. That's the God that we serve. What does Romans 5, 8 say? Even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated his love. He didn't wait for us to be good. He did it when we were at our worst. And that's what we should do. Father, we are so very grateful for your loving kindness, for you being willing to make a promise, a covenant, that you therefore cannot and will not break to love us. And I just love your dream that you would create a people who would freely love you back and share that love to our friends, neighbors, relatives, strangers in the world, people that so desperately need it. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for loving us that much that you would love us even when we were sinful. In your son's name, we pray, our high priest. Amen.